You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. 3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning everyone. Welcome to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. It's 7am and today is the 31st of May. Uh, joining me in the studio today, um, it's full by the way, I forgot to say that at the beginning, <laughs> we've got Genevieve, Carnegie and Jasmine. Good morning everyone. Good morning. Good morning. How are we this morning? <laughs> yeah, fine. <laughs> very good. Oh, very good. Tell us more Carnegie, we're going to jump on that. Um, I woke up this morning and I tried to make some coffee on my stovetop and forgot to put water in the bottom and the entire <laughs> contraption broke into three parts. So um, I think that's an exciting way to start that Tuesday. Is, yeah, you, you, that must have shocked you into just like yeah. your action. You're like super awake now. You don't even need the coffee. Oh, literally. <laughs> yeah. It's like, bam. Yeah. What else is going to hit me today? <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't, it didn't have any like sentimental value. Absolutely not. I did recently buy it though, which is a little annoying. Oh, mm. could it's, you? It's a screw. Like yeah. you screw it on. It's crazy. <laughs> I just burst off. Sorry, yeah. a percolator for visual context. Yeah, sorry. Yes. Um, <laughs> the handle fell off. The little top bit fell off. <laughs> Everything just <laughs> kind of like, it was like a slow motion, like, you know what happens in movies where it's like, mm. couldn't possibly happen, this is for comedic value. Yeah. Yeah, it was like that. Mm-hmm. Could you possibly send it back? <laughs> no, I feel like they dear, would ask you what happened and yeah, you'd be like, like, dear Kogan, here are mm. three parts of this percolator that was yeah. terrible. Yeah. I've melted the handle. That's quite a common thing though. But why do they melt? Like, I, don't, I know, that, it's kind of stupid. Isn't that what it's for? Yeah, it's like... I remember looking over it and it was like dripping down onto like the stove top. Yes, I've like, been what? there. And then I'm like, oh, I'll like buy a slightly nicer one. Mm-hmm. Here's what happened again. Terrible. Design flaws. <laughs> well, that's what you get at Tuesday breakfast. We really go into detail on different types of coffee makers, yeah. what to buy, what to avoid. Um, maybe, maybe it's telling you to like, drink black tea in the morning no no, not a tea drinker not in the morning Mm. you can have like a midday tea yeah no Mm. i think i'm the same an afternoon tea kind of gal yeah all right let's talk about what's coming up on today's show so i'm sure people have seen that in the news recently uh upla formerly known as the aboriginal community benefit fund has been in the news a lot recently um they recently went into to liquidation um and uh have caused a lot of distress for aboriginal and torres strait islander families and communities who were left without um any sort of uh, any services and, and any sort of justice and there have been some awful reports in the media about the kind of language that was used to talk about their clients. Um, So in light of this recent coverage, 
I thought we could replay uh, Carnegie, your interview that you had with Samantha Rudolph, from an Aboriginal policy officer at the Consumer Action Law Centre. Um, uh, this occurred, you know, late April, and um, in your conversation with Sam, you guys broke down um, what exactly happened at UPLA um, and how they were able to exploit First Nations communities for so long. So that's coming up first. Yeah, that was a great interview with Sam. Um, after that, we'll be speaking with another Sam, Samantha Floriani, who works at the intersection of feminism, human rights and technology um, at Digital Rights Watch, um, which is a super interesting intersection. Um, Sam is going to be talking to us about a, a community-based research project that Digital Rights Watch has been working on um, on trying to rebalance the internet economy and their last event is coming up this Thursday called Create, so she'll be talking to us about that. Um, and then at 8 o'clock we'll be speaking with Danny Cotton, who is a casual worker and PhD candidate at the University of Sydney. She has been on the front lines of the strike at the University of Sydney um, that staff and students have been on um, demanding better wages and better conditions. So we'll be talking to her about what that's been like. And then you'll be hearing conversation I had with Carmen Madison, who is a creative producer and director of an upcoming theatre production called Boy. Um, it's a, a production that's being put on by theatre company Boilover, which is an inclusive performance ensemble aimed at uh, devising unique performances in safe, supportive and fun environments and also showcasing people with disabilities. Awesome. Well, we will be right back with the news headlines right after this. If I have my tongue, 500 languages I would sing to you. This is Monica Jasmine Caro. I'm a proud Gunai Kurnai, Gunishmara and Mukjai Wait woman. I'm a spoken word poet actor and musician and you are listening to 3CR Community Radio. And I love Community Radio because it is about representation and accessibility for all peoples of all walks of life. And I must have a home somewhere I belong. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Here are the news headlines for today, the 31st of May. Uh, so Colombians are heading to the polls in a presidential election that may give the uh, conservative South, Af South American country its first ever left-wing leader and first black vice president. The front-runner, Gustavo Petro, a former guerrilla fighter and senator, faces several rivals, but his main challenge is Federico Guterres, the former mayor of Medellin, uh, Colombia's second city, um, who leads a right-wing coalition with close ties to the incumbent government of President Duque. Uh, this is a historical, uh, sorry, historic election because it is the first time that the left has a real chance of getting power and that is... Uh, is a result of the peace process, according to Laura Gill, who is a political scientist and colonist. Um, it is a proposal, she continues, it is a proposal that brings together social movements that weren't able to express themselves electorally due to the sort of Democles that hung over them during the armed conflict. So um, stay tuned uh, for more coming out of Colombia 
on that. Um, in other news, we, there have been reports of um, ultra-nationalist um, Zionists in, um, in Jerusalem storming Al-Aqsa ahead of an Israeli uh, flag march. There were hundreds of far-right nationalists entering Al-Aqsa Mosque compound um, and there were also lots of police there as well um, firing rubber bullets onto Palestinian protesters, um, injuring at least, sorry, arresting at least 18 Palestinians. Um, uh, Israelis were also preventing Palestinian journalists and photographers from entering Al-Aqsa Mosque um, to record what was happening so yeah, terrifying scenes there. Um, the Jewish, uh, the ultra um, nationalists were Jewish. Uh, were also entering Al Aqsa to attempt to pray, um, which is actually not permitted uh, in the Al Aqsa Mosque compound, um, and that's not permitted by Israeli law, um, and is also forbidden by the chief rabbinate of Israel. Um, however, some far right Israelis believe that they should be allowed to pray in an effort to upend the status quo. Um, Palestinians fear that their sovereignty over the compound is being eroded um, amid calls by far-right Israelis for the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock to be replaced with the Jewish temple. Yeah. Um, I wanted to chat a bit about West Papa, West Papa, sorry, which... Um, I guess doesn't really make mainstream news at all, but late last week, the governor of Indonesia's Papa province uh, gave an interview in which he cast doubt about the government's uh, controversial plans to create new provinces in the rest of eastern region. Uh, so last month, the Indonesian parliament announced plans to split the provinces of Papua and West Papua into five administrative divisions via the creation of South Papua province, Central Papua province and the Papua Central Highlands province. But Governor Lucas Anemb told the news agency that the government lacks the resources to run the proposed new provinces. He added that Papuans were not properly consulted about the plan, which has prompted widespread uh, protests. Um, and it's a little bit speculative whether Anem's comments suggest that the Indonesian government might be reconsidering its plans. Uh, but after the announcement of the plan, one member of the Parliamentary Commission overseeing Home Affairs uh, told the media that the House of Representatives hoped to pass the three bills authorising the creation of the new provinces before June. Um, and the push for the formation of new administrative units in Papua has taken place after the Indonesian parliament re renewed and amended the Papuan Special Autonomy Law, which shapes the administration of the region in July of last year. Um, I guess in response to this, there's been uh, lots of protests taking place in West Papua, uh, kind of speculating what the motive is behind this new uh, proposition. Um, I guess West Papuans just want autonomy um, over their own lands, mm. which uh, have been exploited by uh, Indonesia. Um, so it'll be uh, good to watch this space and see uh, what happens. In other news, a Pakistani movie featuring um, a, a portrait of a, a, a trans dancer in the Muslim country on Friday won the prestigious Khan Queer Palm Prize for Best um, LGBTIQ Plus Queer or Feminist Themed Movie. 
Joyland, which uh, was directed by Saim Sadiq, is a tale of sexual revolution and tells the story of a youngest son in a patriarchal family who is expected to produce a baby boy with his wife, but instead he joins an erotic dance theatre and falls for the troupe's director, a trans woman. Um, Joyland is the first ever Pakistani competitive entry at the Cannes Film Festival and... um, uh, also on Friday won the jury prize in the um, competition called Un Certain Regard, a segment focusing on young, innovative cinema talent. Um, the queer palm jury head, French director Catherine Corsini, said that it's a very powerful film and represents everything that we stand for. Um, the queer palm has been won by big-name directors in the past and has attracted top talent to its juries, but it has no official place at the world's top film festival. So it's still not an official prize. Um, uh, So much so that the festival's leadership will not even allow the Queer Palm, which has been running for a decade, to set up shop in its main building, the Palais du Festival. So even though it's attracting all this attention and all these amazing movies are winning, it's still not part of the main Mm -hmm. film festival. How bizarre. Yes, which says a lot. Um, and then finally, just wanted to direct listeners to um, an exciting book that's being um, released today. It's by Sam Warman, who a lot of our listeners may know, and it's a comic about workers and their unions. It's called Our Members Be Unlimited. And Sam Warman is an incredibly talented um, illustrator, comic artist, but also um really staunch unionist and um, uh, has drawn so many different um, comics and illustrations for different struggles. Uh, and so he looks at the, um, uh, they look at the current political climate um, where, you know, people are looking for answers and alternatives. Um, they look at unions and um, how they came to be, how did they start, what challenges do they face in the 21st century. Um, the book explores unions from Britain to Bangladesh and also looking at the first union from the 18th century to today. And then um, looking at particular instances such as, you know, um, unions in Walmart, China to to Sam's own experience in an Amazon warehouse in, in Melbourne. So oh. that's super interesting. Um, so that's Sam Warman's mm. book, Our Members Be Unlimited. And you may also recognise um, Sam's illustrations from uh, our Radiothon uh, poster last year, um, an incredible poster, um, uh, yeah, detailing um you know, everything that 3CR yeah. stands for. Um, and so, yeah, speaking of which, <laughs> Radiothon. Yeah, Radiothon. I also, sorry, just on that note, there is a launch also for the book. Oh, amazing. My um, friend's doing a speech. Oh, so, so good. So get down. It's uh, at Loading Bay Bar this Thursday, 6 to 8 p.m., uh, Victorian Trades Hall. Um, and, yes, Radiothon. Radiothon, June 2022. Uh, we're still just at the last day of May, but we're entering Radiothon month. Um, so, uh, this year's theme is keep community strong. Uh, we have a target that we need to reach. Um, so we'd like to just let our listeners know that you're going to be bombarded with <laughs> in a good way, of course, cause mm-hmm. you would have already subscribed, obviously. <laughs> um, 
you know, we need subscriptions to keep 3CR going. Uh, it's one of the very few media sources that is completely uh, community run for the community. So it's very important that uh, we keep 3CR on the air. Yes. And so you can listen to us talk about um, the best coffee makers and <laughs> how cold it is yeah. every Tuesday morning. Extremely important. Yeah. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, we'll be back with a song right after this. FreeCR's annual Radiothon fundraiser launches in June. We need your financial support to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits. Your support during Radiothon keeps the station strong and enables us to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year. And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax-deductible. 3CR Radiothon, show your support during June 2022. 3CR, keep community strong. So next up we're going to play you a track from Nina Simone's 1967 album Silk and Soul. I wish I knew how it felt to be free.
They cautioned First Nations peoples that this ad contained sensitive content about the stolen generations. For many Aboriginal Victorian community members, the trauma from forced removal still runs deep. In consultation with community, the Victorian Government has developed the Stolen Generations Reparations Package. We acknowledge there is still more to be done to address injustice experienced by Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. For more information, contact 1800 566 071 or please visit the website. A 3CR supporter. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Just before that, we heard from Nina Simone. Um, and now we are going to jump into our first segment for today. So last month, Carnegie spoke with Sam Rudolph, Aboriginal Policy Officer at the Consumer Action Law Centre about UPLA, the funeral fund that recently went into liquidation due to financial collapse. Formerly known as the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, UPLA has been, had been previously exposed for misleading and deceptive conduct, and while both state and federal authorities raised concerns throughout the years, they were unable to stop the company from operating. There have been some recent articles written about UPLA and the exploitation of First Nations communities, and so we would like to revisit this conversation between Carnegie and Sam that explains exactly what happened. Um, and this interview originally aired the 26th of April. So thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Breakfast, Sam. Can you start by just giving us a little bit of a background on ACBF? Yes, yeah, sure. So um, ACBF, um, also um, known now as UPLA, um, ACBF stands for the Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund. Um, they actually started in the early 90s um, and were um, I guess, portraying themselves as being um, a field insurance plan um, or, field, or a, a policy um, or a fund, as, as stated in their name, uh, for First Nations people. Um, and they kind of went to all across Australia and attended community events um, and were signing First Nations people up to these funds um, and were kind of advertising themselves as being more of a savings fund that would go towards your, your funeral um, when you do pass away. Um, what people then eventually found out was it was more of an insurance policy um, and a lot of other issues came up around um, ACBF having misleading and deceptive conduct. Um, so not only were they portraying themselves as being Aboriginally owned and controlled, um, which, they, which we found for a very long time they weren't, um, they had the name Aboriginal um, in, in their company name. They had Aboriginal artwork as well. So um, I think a lot of First Nations people who were signed up to these policies were, I think, felt quite, you know, misled and um, essentially scammed by this company as well. Um, and what we found is that a lot of policyholders um, who did think it was a savings fund um, found that if their policy was wrong, um, if they missed a payment or if it was um, due to other issues, um, even if they paid over the policy amount, which is on average is about $10,000, they wouldn't get the full money back. Um, so some people what we found is had paid, up, you know, close to $30,000 because some people have been in these policies for three decades. Um, they would still only get the policy amount. So some people are paying a lot of money into this um, and some are coming out of their, their Slimslink payments as well. Um, and what we found is a lot of people also were having... Um, not only their children, but their grandchildren signed up to these policies. And we found cases of infants being signed up to these policies as well. Um, so what we're saying is, you know, 
we have raised issues around um, ACBF, um, who are now known as UPLA, for, for three decades. Um, different governments have, have known about it. Um, and unfortunately now um, ACBF, the company has now gone into liquidation. So people have been paying these policies for three decades um, now, unfortunately don't have that plan for them for when they do pass away. There's um, unfortunately no money there for, for their funerals. Yeah, and you know, as you said, with a name like Aboriginal Community Benefit Fund, it sounds like they're trying to target um, vulnerable Aboriginal communities. Um, and it also sounds like their customers stayed with them for years. You know, there's some who stuck with them for, for 30 years, um, you know, and you did touch on this earlier that they uh, presented as a Aboriginal community, you know, benefit fund. But um, why do you think that the, you know, the people that did sign up, why do you think they stayed that long? Well, that's a really good question. I think, um, well, one, um, there was a lot of people who were employed by ACBF who were actually from community, who were also policyholders. And I think they were also led to believe that this was fantastic. Um, there was nothing out there um, in the financial sector or insurance sector for um, First Nations people. Um, and, you know, sorry, business can be really expensive. It's a huge um, part of our culture um, and having a proper funeral and a proper send-off is really important. Um, and I think people know how expensive and how what the burden, I guess, can be on families, just not just for First Nations people, but for anyone. Funerals can be really expensive. Um, and I think that's one of their sales tactics as well. They're kind of playing on the fact that sorry business is a part, a huge part of our culture. Um, they're playing on the fact that funerals can be really expensive. And I think through some of the um, conversations we've had some of, with some of these policyholders, um, you know, the salespeople would say to them, do you really want your family to have to pay tens of thousands of dollars for your funeral and kind of making them feel like it was their, you know, um, they had an obligation or was their responsibility to make sure that their family didn't have this burden. Um, so what happened was, you know, we're trying to make, you know, people know about the situation. Um, I think one of the reasons why people stayed in these policies was for one, um, the only services that have kind of been dealing with this issue are um, grassroots services who have uh, little to no funding um, and their reach can only go so far. Um, we're concerned that there are some communities that still don't know that they've gone into liquidation as well. We're trying our absolute best, um, especially in Victoria, there's only um, a, like a handful, like, you know, two from the top of my head, um, Asset Consumer Action and the Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service that really give advice on ACBF um, and our reach only goes so far as well. Um, I think also the fact is now that they've also gone into liquidation <clears throat> or as we're kind of having those conversations before that happened, um, some people I think just felt that they've already put so much money into it. Um, there was also this huge concern um, around their policies being canceled and losing all that money. And there was no other option for them to go to another funeral insurer and then start paying all that money again. And some of these people, unfortunately, were um, like elderly and towards the end of their life. So they kind of felt like they had no option. Um, we also have a case where some of the policyholders um, were actually sent letters from ACBF explaining that they have to keep their payments going or their policy will be cancelled. Um, some stories that we're actually hearing now from, from people um, is, you know, now they've gone to liquidation, they feel so much shame um, and they're really hurt by the fact that now 
there's no money there. They have done the right thing by trying to put money away for their funeral. Um, and they're really upset that, that now their families are now going to have to pay for their funeral when they do pass away. Um, that's why people kept paying. They thought even though they're gone, they're, you know, something might happen, you know, I might pass away soon. Um, that hopefully, you know, there'll, there'll still be money there to help pay for my funeral. So there's a lot of aspects as to reasons why people were paying, but the, the main thing was just um, people had the, their family um, as their main concern and not having that burden. Um, and now, unfortunately, a lot of people are really upset and feel quite ashamed by what's happened. Yeah, and that, again, is just exploitation of people who are just trying to do the right thing. Exactly. So what, what led to their collapse? So there's a number of things that um, led to it. So um, one thing in particular, I guess, was the Banking Royal Commission. Um, from there, um, the, the Royal Commission really highlighted the misleading and deceptive conduct of ACBF. Um, it really highlighted... Um, their, their sales practices and um, they weren't really being quite um, transparent with policyholders on what the fund actually was. Um, has been a lot of court action as well uh, and ASIC has stepped in where they, where they have been able to um, and doing little things here and there. But one thing was, um, I think, coming out of the Royal Commission was that they could not sell or sign up new policyholders without having a, a specific licence. Um, so... Um, what happened was ACBF, um, after the Royal Commission, they rebranded to UPLA. They then applied for that licence. Um, that licence eventually got denied. So um, for a long time, they still weren't able to sign up new policyholders. In the meantime, the only money they were essentially were making were people, the existing policyholders, who were was, who was still making their payments, their fortnightly payments. Um, that was the only money that they were making. Um, at the same time, a lot of people... Um, who found out about the misleading and deceptive conduct um, contacted like people like us um, for assistance and we were able to um, lodge and um, get positive determinations through AFCA. So some people had their whole policies paid out. There was quite a few of those across Australia, in Queensland, New South Wales in particular, where a lot of people were getting positive determinations and payouts um, from AFCA. So essentially... Because of those determinations, which is a great thing, um, ACBF were then losing money. Um, so they had to pay out all those um, determinations. Um, so we could see um, from about June last year, oh, this doesn't look great. You know, that's great that ASIC has stepped in and meant they can't sign up new policyholders, but it's, it was essentially a band-aid fix. It wasn't actually sorting out the issue, um, you know, of potential liquidation and look where we are now. So... Um, Fund one first went into liquidation and we were like, yeah, we knew that was going to happen. But very shortly after then, the rest of the funds went into liquidation. So that's um, essentially what happened. Yeah, uh, you mentioned that, you know, they have been taken to court. Um, what other action has been taken against them previously and what has the result been? Um, there has been a couple of little things here and there. Uh, I think the first um, kind of known um, kind of court action or um, where people kind of raised issues around um, the ACBF, I believe, was in 1992. Um, I believe the government at the time uh, was made aware of that. And some little things have happened here and there. Um, so I, I, it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly the things. There's been a lot of things that have happened over, I mean, 1992 was before I was born. So it's for me, I'm still kind of shocked to know that this company yeah. was able to 
you know, operate for 30 years basically. So it's just, for me, it's, I'm still shocked to know that. Um, so there have been little things here and there. Um, so I think that a lot of people in community are quite frustrated at the fact that only little things happened over 30 years um, that kind of helps stop them from operating certain ways. One of them, like I said, not being able to start be policyholders um, and having to, you know, they then had to provide over financial documents quite a few times and those types of things. Um, but they were, like I said before, just Band-Aid fixes because look what's happened now. I think one of the conversations that we've been having with other consumer groups um, and policyholders as well is that um, if this was a mainstream company or mainstream insurer um, and it was found that they were doing this to, you know, just the regular, I guess, population, it would have been shut down a long time ago, perhaps within five years. Um, the fact that's been happening for 30 years and there's little court actions here and there haven't done anything. Um, look where we are now. So now we're trying to seek a redress scheme. So, yeah. Yeah, that was going to be my next question to you, which is, you know, <laughs> if this is affecting a much broader audience of people and not just primarily Aboriginal communities, you know, I imagine that there would have been a very different response and 30 years is a very very long time for a company like this to have just continued on getting money uh you know yeah it's it's very upsetting yeah. to see um long time yeah so what is the consumer action law center doing to hold people responsible and help those who've been victims of this get some compensation so one thing we've been doing um, for a long time, since before I was, I've was, i been working at Consumer Action, um, is to try to make people know about the issue. Um, we did um, do a huge submission or um, a huge piece of work for like, um, the Banking Royal Commission around redress. Um, we we're hoping some, for some really positive change from there. Um, for a long time, we have been assisting policyholders um, with making claims through AFCA. Um, we have specialist lawyers that do with insurance issues. Um, and that they're fantastic lawyers and, um, you know, have been able to get some great determinations um, from AFCA. Um, now what we're trying to do is um, we are now part of a, a, a national kind of campaign, bringing, up, bringing together all the consumer groups who um, have clients um, who, had, who have policies with ACPF who had them previously. Um, there are a lot more clients in Queensland, New South Wales. Um, there are only... There are still a lot in Victoria, um, but I think um, ACBF did target, I would say, the Queensland and New South Wales community a lot more. Um, and what we're kind of doing is using our expertise and our connections with government, um, with the opposition, and even with state government, just kind of telling people and ministers, senators, and just telling them about this horrible issue. Um, so one thing we will be doing is meeting with as many people as we can um, to let them know about the issue. It's also quite surprising too that a lot of people don't know about the issue um, unless you work in this space or or um, have heard through it from you know through some people. But um, try and make people aware of it. Um, one thing we also are trying to do um, is obviously do media and tell people about this awful company and what they've been doing for such a long time. Another thing we've been doing with it within the water um, campaign team is drafting um, potential redress schemes. We, are, we do know that um, if um, the government, whoever is elected, um, want to do something to, to assist these people who have been, you know, essentially scammed by this company, we will need to provide some kind of options. 
Um, so we have drafted a couple of redress schemes that um, need that we're going to take to community and get their consultation as well and see whether that works for them. Um, so that's something that we are trying our best to do. Um, and yeah, just trying to get the word out. The, the main thing we can do is um, try and get this as a, a major talking point within um, within government and within the opposition is to get people talking about it. Um, I think one thing we've kind of been talking about as well is we're now in 2022, um, times are changing. Um, you know, this needs to change. We're talking about First Nations issues more, um, more than ever. We probably need to talk about them a lot more. Um, we, you know, we had a great outcome um, with the Telstra fine and how they treated their First Nations customers. Let's carry on and do this as well. Um, and seek and give people proper redress. We're not asking for handouts. We're asking for people, for the government to, you know, to, to do the right thing, essentially. Um, governments have allowed this to happen for 30 years. It's now time to, to, to step in and do the right thing. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're just trying to get the word out there, speak to as many people as possible. We've been writing numerous letters um, to, to all different um, ministers and senators. And we've also got an open letter that's being um, launched on Wednesday next week. Um, uh, that's an open letter. And we've had, I would say, close to 120 different um, industry or, um, organizations and consumer groups, um, some really, really big names who have signed on to this letter and support um, for a redress scheme. So there's a lot of things happening in the background there, um, but we're just trying to talk to as many people as possible. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, having uh, the ability to just bury your loved ones and give them a proper dignified funeral is a very, very basic human right. So the government needs to be stepping up in that capacity, whoever wins. Um, I agree. Yeah. If we have any listeners who have been affected by this um, or any listeners who just want to learn more, uh, where can they go? Um, so one thing they can do is go onto our website, um, Consumer Action Law Centre. Um, we do have some information on there on our Career Help um, website, which is part of Consumer Action. Um, we have some great information um, that was, has been drafted up with our wider campaign team um, about what you can do, the key points of the issue um, and what you can do and lists of organisations that can help you. Um, so even if you're not within Victoria, because Consumer Action, we assist um, Victorians, um, we have a list of numbers that you can call from whichever state that you're in. Um, and we also have um, a number, we understand that this can be really distressful and it has been really distressing for a lot of people in community. Um, we also have some um, numbers that you can call to, to give some um, free counselling as well. So um, we do have a couple of things that, that we have been able to do um, to try and at least get people some help or point them in the right direction. So um, if you go onto our website, you'll be able to um, have a look at that information um, and, and take it from there. Amazing. Um, that's all we have time for today. But thank you so much for joining us and raising awareness about this extremely important issue. We really appreciate it. That's great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks. That was Sam Rudolph, Aboriginal. Hang on, sorry. Just a little... <laughs> A little malfunction with the mics there. Uh, that was Sam Rudolph, Aboriginal Policy Officer at the Consumer Action Law Centre, speaking to Carnegie earlier in April about the now liquidated Upla Funeral Fund. 
And next up, we're going to play you a track uh, by Thelma Plum. This is her latest single, Backseat of My Mind, which was released last week. And you can actually catch her performing as part of her Making Up to You tour, which is occurring throughout June. Doesn't matter how long it takes, but I know I'll get there soon. I've been looking the wrong way at the other side of the moon. It's not easy to leave it. But I know where I'm going I could hold the wheel forever If I knew you'd be there too was Thelma Plum, Backseat of My Mind. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical, community-owned media during our Radiothon. We'll be taking donations online, over the phone and in the station to help keep 3CR going for another year. 
Independent community media is vital, and we need your support to keep community strong. The 3CR Radiothon kicks off in June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au, call the station on 03-9419-8377 or drop in at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during business hours. 3CR, keep Keep community community strong. strong. Welcome back to 3CR Tuesday Breakfast. Samantha Floriani works at the intersection of feminism, human rights and technology across both the public and private sectors. As a former program director for Code Like a Girl, Sam is dedicated to fighting for fairness in tech from gender equity in the tech industry to upholding privacy in a surveillance-obsessed world. Sam is a program lead at Digital Rights Watch and is on the show this morning to talk to us about... Um, Digital Rights Watch's community-based research project on rebalancing the internet economy. Welcome to the show, Sam. Thanks so much for having me. Um, Can we start off by just talking about what the internet economy is? Yeah, that's a really great question. So there's a lot to that. And I think what we're looking at specifically in this project is almost what could be called the creator economy is another way of putting it. And so this idea that we are... Um, you know, online, creating content, consuming content, and there's this monetization element to it. And so it's looking at all these different ways that people use digital platforms to create, to promote their work, to to, to, be, to work at all, um, and how they're able to uh, create a sustainable living wage from that, essentially. And so the project itself is looking at the power imbalance that exists between these you know major digital platforms and all of the rest of us who are on them who are you know populating them with content that makes them what they are but aren't always getting the best deal when it comes to um you know financial gain or even just uh, <laughs> you know mental well-being or, or a good experience for example yeah absolutely um so you have a event coming up on thursday um which is the final one in a series of events on this project. Um, And this one explores, it's called Create. Um, What are some of the other themes that have been explored so far? Yeah, so we've had, this will be the fourth, as you said, the fourth event um, of this project. So the other themes have been Exhibit, Imagine and Gather. So Exhibit looked at the ways that content moderation and content governance is impacting people on uh, social media platforms in particular. We invited, um, you know, uh, artists and influencers and sex workers and queer people to come along and talk about the the different ways that they experience online spaces and how these content moderation algorithms are impacting their ability to, um, you know, be on these platforms, be seen on these platforms and build communities on these platforms. And then then we had Imagine, which was all about uh, writers and storytellers um, and, uh, you know, people who are using the written word, essentially, to to tell stories and to do their work. Um, So we had a discussion about things like um, 
payment models, how you get paid as a writer and how, how the internet and recommendation algorithms and social media are impacting the ways that people consume the, the written word. And then we had Gather, which was all about uh, organisers and activists and how they use digital platforms to be able to build uh, social movements and how to, um, you know, get people to join, you know, whatever their cause may be and all of the challenges that come with that in terms of things like surveillance or, you know, turning your uh, your social cause into a, a marketing strategy, essentially. And then the final one, um, which we're doing this Thursday in Melbourne, is Create, which is all about um, musicians and the music industry in particular. Yeah, um, I've seen a little bit on, you know, social media, um, musicians kind of being quite vocal at the moment about a lot of pressure from their agents about putting out, you know, viral content on TikTok as a part of, um, you know, p- before they can put out a song, they have to conceptualize this whole other kind of personal marketing strategy for themselves. Um, do you think that this is fair to artists and the music industry? Well, I mean, that's a really interesting question, which I think that we will get into quite a bit in this um, in this event, because I think on the one hand, sure, look, it's, it, that seems like a, a really kind of insane expectation that, that artists should also have to be, um, you know, social media content creators. But at the same time, musicians have always had to do, like, peripheral work around just creating their art. You know, they've always had to go on tour or, you know, sell merchandise or whatever. So there's, there's, I, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing from um, the panel, mm. and there are quite a few artists on the panel, about their, their experiences with that um, because, yeah, I think there is a real question there about, you know, is, is it is it is different, but is it better, is it worse? How is it impacting them? Is it, um, you know, <laughs> I think it's just not necessarily as simple as, like, this is this is awful and it shouldn't be this way. I think it's, it's definitely way more, way more nuanced, nuanced than that. Yeah, absolutely. And it will be so great to hear from artists um, and hear a conversation around this because I think like with uh, a lot of the other themes that are being explored in this project, there's two sides to the coin, like there's two sides to internet culture in general. Um, Can you talk to us a bit more about that and what rebalancing the internet economy would look like? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, (laughs) So one of the things that has come up time and time again in these in these events and through the survey that we're also running, which anyone is able to fill out if you're interested in participating in the in the project, I encourage people to fill out the survey. Um, it will help us sort of ground this in community experiences as well. Um, but the thing that has come up time and time again is that there is really this double-edged sword, right? Because there is immense um, power in these, in these platforms um, in terms of being able to... Uh, find like-minded people, being able to build community. You know, when it comes to this upcoming event in particular, with regard to the music industry, being able to develop a more direct relationship with fans is something that seems to be um, coming up a bit. And also, um, you know, maybe the ability for it to create additional pathways for um, underrepresented groups to get a, a, a foot in the door in the music industry. Like, that's, that's a really um, amazing opportunity so it's definitely not just a matter of of it being all terrible and across all the other themes as well it's definitely come up time and time again that people are like very 
eager to be able to um, to use these digital platforms in ways that are that are benefiting them, but there are just so many challenges that are wrapped up in them as well, which can make it really, really hard and even sometimes like actively harmful for particular groups to be using these digital platforms. And so one of the things that we're trying to do with this project is to be able to sort of draw out those experiences find some insights, like running themes throughout them, and then develop some um, policy recommendations about how we, how digital platforms could work better to serve um, local communities in a more uh, rights-respecting and equitable way. Yeah, that's... Um, that's- like I, I really look forward to what comes out of your research and what comes out of this project. Um, you know, and the music industry is still very male dominated. You know, does this? Do you think that this dis, uh, disproportionately affects women and gender diverse people and other marginalized communities at the same time as kind of giving them a platform, a little bit of power? Yeah, that's that's a, that's a good point. It's actually been really interesting trying to put together this panel because usually like across all the other themes I've found it quite like quite easy to find um you know a really good range of speakers across gender and all other you know intersections and and this one has been really challenging which I guess I shouldn't have been surprised by because there is a particular you know there is a particular um gender a diversity issue in the music industry, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I think one of the one of the things that makes digital platforms and the internet so alluring is the, this idea that the that you you can, um, you know, regardless of your background, come come to it and be able to maybe get a foot in the door. The trouble is, at the same time, is then you have you know there's still racism and sexism online that happens all the time, not just from other users, but also from um, the platforms themselves when it comes to how they're developed and built and the biases that can come up in the algorithms. This was a really big one that came up in um, our first event exhibit, actually, in terms of the biases in community guidelines and um, content moderation and how that can actually, you know, disproportionately harm um, vulnerable or marginalised or underrepresented groups. So I'm curious to find out a bit about how that applies to in um, sort of this music context as well, because I think there's this, yeah, there's this sense that it's a really positive, great thing that you can, you know, create some music and put it online. But I wonder how those other sort of underlying issues are also playing out for underrepresented groups. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would be super keen to find out as well. Um, can you tell us a bit more about the panel, who's going to be on there, um, when and where it is? Yeah, so it's this Thursday um, at 6.30pm in Collingwood uh, at Music Market. So we're partnering with Music Victoria to put on this event. Uh, so yeah, so it's hosted at Music Market. All of these details you can find on the Digital Rights Watch website as well for anyone who's interested. Uh, we have a really incredible lineup of speakers. I'm Super excited for people to hear from them. So we've got Eilish Gilligan, who is a local artist, a singer-songwriter. Um, she'll be joining the panel, and then she'll also be doing a short performance after the panel, which we think will be really nice. We figured if we're going to be talking about music, why not have some music there as well? So that'll be a good time. Um, we have Will Evans, who is the Bandcamp artist and label ambassador for Australia and New Zealand. 
Um, we have Jake Cleland, who is who works in tech as an information security consultant, but was previously a music critic with over 10 years' experience writing about local music and culture, so a really nice intersection of, of tech and music there. Uh, we have Glenn Benny from um, APRA AMCOS. So Glenn will be talking about how, you know, the relationship between royalties and copyright and how that, how digital platforms sort of impact the way for artists to make money. Um, and we have Carissa Grant, who is a First Nations Community Engagement Officer and Social Worker at Support Act. So Support Act is a charity that's all about supporting artists and their mental health. And um, Carissa is particularly... Uh, she runs the First Nations Community Engagement Program and so is particularly interested in how that impacts First Nations artists, uh, specifically when it comes to um, navigating these online spaces as well. Incredible. And where can people get tickets? So you head to um, digitalrightswatch.org.au forward slash create. That's where all all the information is there, the link to tickets is there, and the link to the survey is there if anyone wants to contribute to the research. Um, tickets are twenty bucks, which help to cover our costs, but we uh, we definitely don't want to turn anyone away for lack of funds. So if if that is a barrier, please get in contact and we're more than happy to comp tickets to people. Amazing. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Sam, but thanks so much for joining us. Um, and we will link to all um we'll link to the page that sam just talked about on our show notes later today um but yeah thank you so much and good luck with the panel on thursday well thank you so much for having me that was sam floriani from digital rights watch talking about their upcoming event with music victoria this thursday called create the final event in their community-based research projects on balancing the internet economy um, you can follow Digital Rights Watch on Instagram and Twitter at DRWAUS. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Okay, we're going to play you a song by First Nations artist Kian, based here in Nam. This is her 2020 single, Better Things.
That was Better Things by Kian. Danny Cotton is a PhD candidate and a casual university worker at the University of Sydney. She is also a revolutionary socialist who is striking against unfair work conditions. Um, and Danny is on the show this morning to discuss the ongoing strike at the University of Sydney. Welcome to the show, Danny. Hi. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Um, lovely to have you this morning. I know it must be pretty chaotic where you are, so thank you for taking the time to speak with us. Um, can we just start off by giving our listeners a little bit of a background about what's going on at the University of Sydney? So in terms of what's going on, I mean, in the long term, I guess, we've had quite a bit of um, issues through the pandemic um, at our university. Uh, and to give a bit of an idea, I mean, I think we... There's a lot of staff anger, I guess, at, at the way that we've been treated through the through the pandemic. We've had increased workloads. Our students have been under a lot of strain. Uh, and meanwhile, you know, we've been struggling through the same same pandemic issues that, that everyone has. So I guess that I think that's fed into a lot of why we saw the strike today uh, in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, um, that's definitely something that a lot of universities have been struggling with across Australia. Um but the strike at the University of Sydney was organised in response to management's failure to meet um, the union's demands um, in the ongoing enterprise bargaining process. Um, just so our listeners are familiar with the process, are you able to give a kind of short explanation about what an EBA is? Yeah, totally. I mean, in, in Australia, we actually have some of the kind of worst anti-strike laws in the world, uh, which which make it illegal for workers to... Uh, take any form of industrial action, including strike action, uh, except for in very, very specific uh, periods. And those periods happen once every four years when you renegotiate your contract, which is also known as this EBA, an Enterprise Bargaining Agreement. Um, And, yeah, essentially, so I I think uh, we've we've entered that round in the university sector across the country, and the University of Sydney is one of the first off the blocks in terms of 
um, having those negotiations. We've been in negotiations since August last year. Um, and uh, try, just trying to trying to just put an end to a lot of the, the the big issues. I mean, just to give people a bit of an idea of what some of the things we're fighting over. I mean, partly we're just trying to defend the conditions that we already have, which includes things like uh, we have a really important principle in in university tertiary education that uh, that your teachers should be researchers, and so we have kind of a, a bunch of workload demands that include uh, this principle of the forty forty twenty, meaning forty percent of time for ongoing staff should be, ongoing academic staff should be research, 40% should be uh, teaching, and then the, the last 20% should be kind of external engagement and things like that. So uh, it's, it's about defending things like that, defending um, important uh, principles like workload committees to try and stop workloads getting out of control. But it's also fighting against, I mean, the rampant exploitation. We're now 75% of people at... Uh, Sydney University are in insecure contracts, either casual or fixed-term contracts. And that kind of job insecurity just uh, trickles down the system. I mean, in terms of the education students receive, they, they, you know, it makes management, it makes it a lot easier for management to very quickly cut courses, which students hate. When you've studied your whole, you know, degree, trying to do the last year in parasitology or whatever the third-year special, speciality, that, that can just get cut from beneath your feet those staff get sacked, um, and so uh, yeah, and, and obviously it's brutal, uh, brutal conditions for staff. I mean, I know people who've had to move all around the country looking for work, and you know, you, you often a lot of people wouldn't realise that most university tutors get essentially sacked every six months and have to reapply for our jobs, uh, which is just degrading and, and um, leads to terrible education outcomes. So those are some of the things in terms of you know what we're actually fighting for. We really want to turn that stuff around. I mean, we want a real pay rise, but we. You know, we, we need to turn around some of the real issues in working conditions and education. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, ironically, um, it's just in the news this morning that university uh, chiefs are reaping million-dollar pays with record surpluses, um, while at the same time jobs at a lower level are being slashed um, all over the country. And it's actually mentioned that the University of Sydney has one of the most astronomical surpluses ever recorded of a billion dollars, which is going to kind of the VCs and people higher up. Um, yeah, like it's it's the increase in kind of corporatization of universities all over the country has been um, quite jarring to witness. Totally. I think, and that $1 billion figure is, is, is just kind of salt to the wound, I think, for many staff. I mean... To that, that annual report that included that figure of a billion dollars in profits. And it's not just that, they actually have that, so that's their operating surplus, but they also have kind of a, a rainy day fund of $1.3 that's still intact after the pandemic. They, they chose to sack staff rather than go to the rainy day fund, which has over a billion dollars in it as well, on top of the billion dollars in operating surplus. But you can also see in those numbers that came out in the, the university's annual report that they, they, they have to give every year to government, um, but I think we've seen evidence of, of what we knew all along was happening. So we know that there's been a huge, huge cuts to staff numbers. We've lost 6.1% of academic staff last year alone. And if you include, you know, all staff in that, it's a 4.5 staff to cut to staff across the board. So that's one in 20 jobs gone. But, the, but our workloads haven't gone down. Actually, they've gone much, much, much up. We haven't had a 5% reduction in student numbers. We've had a 23% increase in student numbers. 
So when when you see uh, them jacking up the amount of income they're getting thanks to Morrison's job ready graduate um, package that sees you know my students I'm in, I'm in I'm in the arts faculty many of my students complain about having to pay double the fees that students before them had to uh, so management is just jacking up the, the kind of the ex- exploitation uh, at the same time you know with with <clears throat> with these workloads increasing. And it's, I think it's, it's particularly galling. I mean, to give an, a bit of an idea of why, why staff might be angered about this, you know, we've been fighting wage theft fires all across the university for years. Um, you know, it's things like, for example, in, my, uh, in the School of Social and Political Sciences, which is where I work, we had four hours, just four hours, to do all of our administrative tasks. Now, that was absolutely nothing, you know, things like listening to lectures, responding to student emails. I mean, this... This cost. This is a, a minimum of you know 20 hours uh, of work. Usually much more than that, more like 30. Uh, but they gave us just a four-hour payment to just you know as a sign of respect is how people took it. But university slashed that. And when we when I went to university managers and said, why are you doing this? How can you how can you justify this? They just went along with it. Now for for many people, four hours work can be the difference between making rent or not. And one of the people who got that money slashed uh, said that to me. He said that was my rent money. Uh, but we find out that after all of these cuts and all of them turning the screws on every little tiny little detail, just trying to make our life worth and education worth, uh, then they've reaped a billion dollars out of it all. I mean, it, I think that's, I, I think it's, it's been, uh, uh, I guess, subjectively, I think it really will drive a lot of people into the arms of the union, frankly. Yeah, like when you compare um, their salaries versus the way that they're treating their staff is it's really it's just completely unacceptable and I'm not sure how um you know they do justify it at all um what has management's response been to the strike so far um management have been thus far playing pretty hardball uh in terms of you know oh we, we're not going to listen to the strikes we're going to um uh, we, we only listen to reasonable negotiations I think the evidence speaks to the other direction. I mean, we've had reasonable negotiations, quote unquote, for the last, um, you know, for the last eight months since August, um, and and we've seen really, you know, we've seen some small wins for the union. You know, I'm happy to say that we've got some good wins on things like leave, uh, getting things like gender affirmation leave for transgender staff. Um, but I think the big picture is that on, on all of those big issues that I kind of mentioned before that are really motivating people, things like stopping our, our, our workload skyrocketing out of control, trying to win some job security for, for, for all of the workers, for, you know, even for permanent workers who face constant change management proposals that see people sacked and their jobs threatened. You know, all of these things that we've been really pushing for, we've seen no movement on. I'm, I'm quietly hopeful that over the next few months, when you know the university can save face by saying we we didn't listen to the strikes, we don't listen to those kinds of unreasonable things, that they will kind of renege on some of the, particularly on some of the attacks on our condition. Um, but uh, I have to be quite frank with people that you know I think we'll be heading in for another semester of strike action at Sydney Uni. Given given their behaviour so far, I can't imagine that by next semester we'll be in a position where we can can accept the the contract such as it is. Yeah, um, absolutely. And I think that what you're doing at um, Sydney Uni is a really great example of what industrial action can look like and what union activism can achieve, Um, you know, especially for casual employees where 
There's a lot of exploitation of casual employees in the university sector um, against forced redundancies, against a lot of the other issues you've mentioned this morning. Um, you know, what would your message be to other union members who, you know, there's going to be EBA rounds happening all around the country. Um, what would your message be to other union members wanting to ensure their work rights are also protected? Um, my message would be, if you don't fight, you lose. I mean, we, we, are, we are absolutely, I mean, everyone's struggling right now at the shops with, with kind of the inflation. You can feel it every time you go to the petrol pump. And our wages are just going back and back and back. University yesterday announced a 2.1% pay rise, which is nowhere near the 5.1% inflation. That's a real pay cut for university workers. So if we if we're going to sit down and 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 let them do let them let them do this, they're going to keep on doing it. Um, but I have a lot of hope right now. I mean, we've seen nurses striking, teachers striking, fighting fighting for you know public services and for fair pay. Um, and for a pay, fair pay rise. I mean, we've seen strikes even in the aged care sector, which I think is really inspiring. Uh, so everywhere, I think we can, you know, band together. I mean, I'd like to see a day where we can band together with those industries and strike at the same time and, and send a real message. I mean, we've got a new Albanese government, and I'd really like them to hear the message that workers want these things turned around. We've survived a decade of Liberal government, and we need real change, and we really need them to deliver it. And we can't afford to sit around for three years and, and hope they'll get elected in, in another three years. Um, we need, yeah, we need that change. So I guess my message would be, you know, let's keep up the fight. I'll also mention that we've got a, a strike fund. If you go to ntu-newsouthwales.square.site, uh, you can get, uh, just donate to our strike fund and, and help us in our fight. Uh, and, yeah, and any, any solidarity, any pictures you can take, you know, it, it helps to spread the word about what we're going through. Amazing. We'll uh, link to that in our show notes later today as well for any listeners who do want to um, get involved um, and donate. Um, that's all we have time for this morning, Danny, but thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us and um, just, you know, let people know and raise awareness about this very important issue. Um, and good luck with everything else as well. Yeah, thanks so much to you and your listeners for listening to exploited university workers. Nobody else seems to. <laughs> well, you're welcome on 3CR anytime. So that was Danny Cotton who is a PhD candidate and casual worker at the University of Sydney, um, talking to us about the ongoing strike and the importance of union activism. Tuesday Breakfast would like to thank our friends at Living Coco for their support of the program. Living Coco puts community first by respecting food sovereignty. Based in Braybrook, they create bean-to-bar chocolates, cacao tea, intentional drinking cacao, and cacao mass in bulk. A zero-waste manufacturing space, Living Coco ethically sourced cacao from over 130 domestic village farms in Samoa. They are at livingcoco.com or on Facebook and Instagram. On the show today, we have Carmen Madison, who is the creative producer of Boy, a theatre production uh, conducted by theatre company Boil Over. Boil Over is an inclusive performance ensemble which aims to devise unique performances in a safe, supportive and fun environment. 
Carmen is here to chat to us about Boilover and the upcoming production Boy. Thanks so much for chatting to us, Carmen. Thank you. Thanks for having me today. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, such a pleasure. Um, and I think it would be a good place to start off, you know, with a little bit of context into Boilover, the theatre company. Um, if you could just explain to our listeners what is Boilover and what does the ensemble aim to do for the community? Sure. So Boilover um, Performance Ensemble is based in Sunbury. Um, it's been running now for about 13 years and it was the brainchild of um, Bernadette Heather Hetherington. She was a, a local um, Sunbury identity, or she still is, and she worked for Sunbury Community Health and she really saw the need and the gap um, that there was no opportunities for people with a disability to, you know, be involved in the arts or the performing arts. And she established um, Boilover Performance Ensemble um, and it's been going strong ever since. Some, some of our members are still um, our founding members and then we've seen a few different, um, you know, generations of artists that have come through over the years. Um, it's primarily been um, performance-based work and since I've come in, on board in 2018 uh, we've really pushed the physical theatre aspect of um, the company so it's not straight theatre as one would imagine it's more physical storytelling dance and yeah real real physical expression and we've used that through performance so this performance of boy is really um, exciting for us. Yeah, it sounds like such a great uh, initiative as well. And I mean, apart from it being obvious probably to our listeners of why it's so important to have diverse ensembles, but if you could, I guess, uh, elaborate on maybe your experience or what you found to be a, of benefit with working with Boilover on your upcoming production. Sure. So for Boilover, um, as I said before, it's an inclusive performance ensemble and our artists uh, do have a disability. Of um, Sure. So for Boilover, um, as I said before, it's an inclusive performance ensemble and our artists uh, do have a disability. What goes along with that is people with a disability often don't get the opportunities to, to work in environments, um, professional theatre uh, environments or have access to innovative arts practices or what we're doing in this particular show aerial work and we're working with an international uh, physical theatre company Five Angry Men um, some incredible high-tech cutting-edge audio-visual sound and projection work from Sensi Lab which is based at Monash University so for people with a disability um, in my experience um, this is new terrain and not often um, readily available in sort of mainstream settings that it would be to everybody else. So, um, and it, we're really grateful to Brimbank Council who, you know, has supported us for this project and seen the value of having diverse lived experiences on the stage. And we, we have been um, given a grant to present a work and obviously that they've really backed us over the years. So, very exciting to to present to the community this work, particularly, you know, with diverse artists. Let's focus on the upcoming production, Boy. Uh, so tell us a little bit about that. What is the production about? Okay, so Boy comes from the word buoyant, 
And we played around with that because we're working, we were working with themes of the ocean and um, and yeah, it was it was all around the beach and listening to shells and and the sounds of the waves that you can hear inside the shell when you put it to your ear. And then the metaphors um, over the years have really shifted because when we started the work, we're actually was pre-COVID. And so now buoy has become more uh, symbolic of, you know, turbulent times and what's kept us afloat. So what's kept us buoyant, what's kept us connected through those times. And for two years, Boilover, we were running workshops online um, and there's still some of our artists that are in lockdown there still in lockdown now they're not part of this show because um, they're immunocompromised and it's too much of a risk for them to to actually attend and perform and be amongst the audience so yeah it's been very much a work that is some symbolic of the times that we're living in without directly talking about the times that we're living in but using the metaphor of the ocean and and stories of the sea really um, and and coupled with that is the the shells and the, and the really how how this at this time we've all had the opportunity to really listen because we've had that time to sort of sit with ourselves and <laughs> um, hone in to to what's important. Yeah. And so that's really what boys about. Yeah, that sounds great. I I mean it's so hard for any production, especially over the course of lockdown, to not be impacted by exactly what was being felt around that time. So it's really um, exciting that you could kind of integrate some of that feeling as well. You mentioned before uh, some of the incredible collaborations that were being featured in Boy. Um, Would you be able to chat to us a little bit about that? I know that there's Sensi Lab and Five Angry Men that you uh, spoke about a bit earlier. Yes. So I'll start off with Sensi Lab. Um, It's the incredible mastermind behind um, the um, technology we're working with is Dr. Alon Ilsar um, and he has um, developed what are called air sticks and they're an interactive um, sort of like what he designed was like a drumstick or or drumsticks um, and you can play them in the air um, and they would trigger sound and not only do they trigger sound they trigger projections so we're taking that technology into a performance mode and we're using the air sticks in a very much small, I won't let, let too much cat out of the bag, but we're, we're using this technology to be able to trigger the sound in the show so that artists and, and a lot of this uh, technology that um, he's created is to make sound and music playing more accessible. So someone with a disability who ordinarily couldn't, perhaps couldn't use their hands but want to play guitar can use that through the technology of this adaptive sort of technology of the air sticks and that's what we'll be uh, showcasing in a really magical way in the show and but it also triggers projections these projections will be interactive as well so we'll have a very immersive theatre experience along with that is um so that's one way we're sort of pushing the boundaries. Um, and then along with that is an incredible structure which becomes the set, which is what we're, we are uh, suspended from, so to speak, um, which looks a bit like an oil barge. It's a big metal truss. Um, 
and uh, the artist will be completing some incredible um, aerial work um, from from this truss, which um, is based in the space. And yes, we've been installing that today here at the Bowery with the Five Angry Men, who they tour uh, an iconic Melbourne show, which is toured around the world, which is called The Bell. So you probably, they're very common for most street festivals. Um, and we've been so incredibly blessed to work with them. And we've been doing aerial training a few nights a week just to get our head around the physicality of going up and, you know, wearing harnesses, getting our body used to working in that way. And we've had some really amazing um, work come out of that as well. So the other uh, group that we're collaborating with is Your DNA, which is a disability arts um, uh, organisation which is across town um, in Croydon which has been really amazing and we've been working um, they have a lot more different areas of practice than we do we're just a theatre so that uh, at your DNA they offer stagecraft like lighting sound design costume design set design as well as all their theatre making aspects and well, I'm incredibly lucky um, that we've met some amazing artists from your DNA who are collaborating with us on this show. We're working with the amazing Fleur Dean, who's a set designer, rope access technician, animateur, costume designer, everything. And uh, one of the key artists we've been working with, who's also a guest performer of the show, is uh, the wonderful Liam McKechnie. Um, and he's been doing some incredible uh, costume designs. So we've got amazing um some some of the without being letting too much giving too much away we have some sea creatures you know we're going with the oceanic theme um so some of our aerial work will feature underwater scenes so we have an incredible um seahorse and some amazing floating jellyfish which you know the costumes have been designed by by Fleur Dean and Liam McKechnie and uh, other members of your DNA. So it's been great to make connections with them and, um, you know, we'll, we'll form, uh, we're forming a sort of community of um, artists, uh, you know, artists with disability, you know, not just in, in, in performance but in all aspects of stage management and, um, you know, stage craft as well. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Um, I, yeah, I'm very intrigued to see uh, exactly what that kind of physical theatre looks like. I guess for you being, you know, the creative producer, uh, for audiences that come to watch Boy, what do you hope that they come away with? Um, I think for me, I always like to work you know I am the creative producer also director um, of the ensemble so for me it's it, one it's to have I think essentially to feel moved in some way um, to connect to the performers um, to challenge perceptions of what artists with a disability can also offer but ultimately is to offer a bit of create creative imagination explosion um, and be sort of captivated for a time to step outside of your mundane everyday life and just sit back and enjoy the wonderment of um, theatre making in its finest and that's definitely what you'll get when you come and see Boy 
Um, and we're incredibly excited to be able to present it after two years of, you know, being locked down and, and um, you know, almost going ahead and not going ahead and, and all of that. And, yeah, just and just for audiences as well to have a, an opportunity again to come together and, you know, see something that's not on a screen, um, to see people live in the flesh and, um, yeah, just come together, I guess, is the most important thing and inspired yeah yeah it is so nice to see so much theater around after lockdown um it seems to be an explosion of creativity um which is so nice and as you said actually getting together physically to watch actual people on stage is a whole different experience to watching something on your screen um now just uh before we uh wrap up Carmen if you could let our audience know you know where they can buy tickets and when and where uh Boy is being showcased sure so um Boy is showcased this Friday the 3rd uh, 6.30 p.m. and Saturday the 4th, I think we have two shows, 4 p.m. and 7 p.m. at the Bowery Theatre in St Albans. And if you jump online, you can go to creativebrimbank.com.au um, and punch in boy and that will take you to uh, a link. It's try booking. If you can't get it through Creative Brimbank, just go to try booking and punch in boy, B-U-O-Y, and you'll definitely find it through there. So I look forward to seeing everybody there. If you come along, you won't regret it. Yeah, awesome. And we'll pop all those details up on our website so people can access them through there as well. Well, it sounds like an incredible production you've got coming up with Boy and well done for all the hard work, especially over the last two years in lockdown. Uh, But it's looking really great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Carmen. Thank you so much, Genevieve. Thank you for having me. That was Carmen Madison speaking about Boilover Theatre Company and their new production, Boy, showcasing performers of diverse ability. To get tickets to the show this coming Friday the 3rd of June at 6.30pm or 4th of June at 7.45pm, head to creativebrimbank slash boy by Boilover. Before we head off, we wanted to let you know that the Northlands exhibition is running at the Melbourne Museum until the 24th of July. And as part of the exhibition on the 11th of June, there'll be a special lecture, A Fight for Survival, the grassroots story behind the exhibition. It'll be delivered by story holders of the Northland Secondary College Fight for Survival, including Gary Foley, Moira Rayner and a special community panel. You can register to attend in person or watch online via the museum's Victoria website. And keep it locked because we got Accents of Women coming up next. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.